All right, here we go. Munitions podcast back at you. September 6, 2023. You know what that means. The the summer shooting season is almost wrapped up, but that doesn't mean the shooting season is over. That just means hunting season is right around the corner. For those of you who enjoy the outdoor sports, as I do, it's time to sight in those guns. If you're still uh, slinging the slug gun, get it sighted in for deer. But there's so much better stuff to be using these days, so go check it out. Um, here with Derek DeBross, and we are coming at you week in, week out, or at least we try to week in, week out, with the Munitions Podcast. Cast. Derek, how you doing, man? I'm doing exceptionally well, Steve. I just got a call from Wilson Combat today. My firearm is finally done and is being delivered. All right. So talk to me. What does a Wilson Combat firearm look like, sound like, act like? What is it? Bite your tongue. It's the best 1911 manufacturer in the world. Um, that's my opinion, of course. Uh, Wilson Combat is it's a higher-end pistol. They they have a nine millimeter double stack that I've been wanting, the EDC9. I ordered it like eight months ago. It takes you know about eight months for these things to be manufactured, and um, it's done and being shipped out to my dealer. Now, are these guys building these things like uh, one off by hand? I'm mean, obviously they they it's a process. They're not it's not custom. But uh, if I ordered one now, are they so mine will get in the assembly line and they will just build well, it by hand? Uh, yeah, I mean they're they're custom in the sense that you build it out, right? There's different components you can pick. You you can pick the you know, the different types of grips, the colors, all that stuff. You get to pick all that and then they build it. So it is a custom gun. Um, and I not exactly sure the manufacturing process works. I don't know if it's a series of people that have their hands on the gun or if it's a single person, but I have fired them and they are top of the line guns. They're great guns. Um, more of an expert's gun, I would say. Uh, any type of 1911, in my opinion, really is. It's not like a Glock you're just going to be able to pick up and fire necessarily, but uh, it's a great gun. I've been looking forward to getting it. So did you get anything new recently? No, no, but it, I got more comments on that. You know, I, I once had, uh, we were up at a cabin, some property I used to own, and we all had a big shooting party. And uh, some dudes with 1911s were sort of taking those things apart and cleaning them afterwards. That's no joke, man. You got it. Like there was more pieces on the table than uh, it, it got me nervous just looking at it. Yeah, I, I've had 1911s. I mean, I definitely prefer um, prefer to you know carry a Glock over a 1911. And there's a whole debate between you know striker fire and 1911s and all this. Um, I think 1911s are great. I think they're wonderful guns. There's a huge history behind them. I like owning them, um, but it's not the gun that I, I carry for personal defense. I, I would. It's not something that I wouldn't do. I just am much more comfortable with my Glock 19. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're they're pretty cool though. No, I you know I haven't bought I haven't purchased other than hunting guns. I bought a rifle last year, another three hundred Win Mag. So I've got an elk hunt plan. Nice. Um, so I'll uh, I got to you're bringing me back a steak, right? Uh, hopefully a lot of steaks. We shall see. I got to hit what I'm aiming at first. So I'm no. Uh, I love elk. It's probably my favorite meat. I love cooking elk. I think it's just one of the best uh, meals you can make. Yeah, COVID shut me down. I was supposed to go to Canada for a uh, moose hunt a couple of years back, right during COVID, and, and it got postponed and it never really happened for me. So this is, uh, I'm looking forward to this, but uh, anyway, let's get at it. You know, we've been, you and I have been talking quite a bit in the last several weeks because our phone's been ringing and, you know, usually when my phone's ringing, it means people are in trouble. And what that means is somebody's out there enforcing the law, but when, when both of our phones ring about the similar stuff and you and I tend to work together, that means there's gun crime afoot. And, you know, when Uh people think gun crime, they're probably thinking like people shooting each other on the streets or, uh, you know, robberies, burglaries, home invasions, that kind of stuff. Well, trust me, that stuff is going on. But the kind of phone ringing we're talking about is when the ATF regulators get involved and they start enforcing rules and regulations against gun shop owners or those who are engaged in the commercial business of selling and buying guns. And, you know, whether it's a pawn shop, whether it's a hunt, a small hunting store, 
or whatever, it's typically the mom and pop type organizations. I don't mean that as an insult, more of, more of a, um, uh, actually a compliment. I, I love those small, uh, gun stores. I know there's one up in Norton, uh, that I go to a lot. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I just, I, I love that you can still hang a shingle in this country, uh, start a retail store and, and buy and sell firearms. And the, the, the problem is we're starting to see, uh, and maybe the the fear, and we've talked about this last week too, but the fear is we're starting to see criminal investigations morphing out of what for years before have always been sort of administrative problems. So, you know, you don't dot your I's, cross your T's, the paperwork uh, gets screwed up. They call you guys because, you know, it's like uh, in the healthcare business, if you're doing home health or Medicare, Medicaid, and you got to fill out paperwork, it's a pain in the ass, you can get sideways. So they call you, it's an administrative problem. Now they're calling you and they're calling me because it's not just the administrative side of ATF, but actually criminal investigations going on. And we're seeing more and more of that. What are your, what are your thoughts on this stuff? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think I'm, I am the first thing from a conspiracy theorist and people who know my politics would tell you that I believe they would anyways. Um, but you know, I, I do think there's a, there's a larger plan here afoot and that's to do what they can to dismantle the firearms industry. I mean, they, they're not even bashful about it. They come out and say it, they, they politic on it. Now. I remember in 2008, Obama was, uh, uh, marketing his campaign toward the gun owner. You remember the whole shotgun picture, yep. um, sportsman for Obama. Like you don't even see that anymore. You can't do that as a, as a Democrat, um, as somebody that's anti-gun, that's just not happening anymore. So times are changing and the gun community needs to, I'm not saying I'm not going to say wake up because I think we are awake, but we need to start voicing our concerns about this. Well, um, I, I think you I'll, you bring hold on a second. You bring up a good point. And I, let me cut you off real quick. You bring up a good point because I hear this a lot. There are those who will vote for one of the parties or another, um, and and I think we all sort of accept that maybe a party is taking an extreme position on something just to run to their far left if they, if you're a Dem or the other way, um, but. You know, what What my good friend always says is, listen to what they're saying. They will tell you what they want to do. So this last time around, Biden was saying, I'm going to take your guns. You know, it's like, I did it before. I'm going to do it again. We're going to take your AR-15s. And I had very, very close friends of mine say, do you, th- do you really think they're going to do that? And, I, and all I ever say is, well, that's what they said they're going to do. So you're either going to vote for somebody who you think is lying to you, or you're going to vote for somebody who wants to take your yeah. guns away. Um, Good way to look at it. I mean, uh, you look at what I, because I work in this industry every day, I, I look at where, where I came from 15 years ago and where I'm at, and it's progressively become more antagonistic, more hostile toward the industry. And the latest thing that Biden is trying to do through attorney general's office is crazy. You know, if I wanted, if I was getting ready to retire down to Florida, I wanted to sell my gun collection. I have quite a few firearms. I, I could be convicted of a crime under the new executive order they're trying to pass. Why, yeah. don't you, why don't you tell the listeners what we're talking about, Steve? Yeah. So first of all, what the hell is an executive order? An executive order is just basically the president bringing out his pen, signing a document that says, I hereby order you administrative regulatory body to enforce this rule this way. Um, so it really, it's not like you voted. It's not like there was a legislative debate on the Congress floor or your, uh, this happens at the state level too, at the state for state regs. Um, it's just an executive order. And for those who go back, it's like Obama got nothing done when he had the, uh, when the, when he didn't have complete Congress. So he pulled out his, this is his second term. So then he just pulled out his pen and contrary to his express opinions just years before, he said, well, I'm just going to do it with my pen instead, the executive order. And then, you know, Trump did some of that. And now Biden has driven the proverbial truck through it. His first two weeks in office was one after the other executive orders. And in the context of what we're talking about, they're trying to redefine 
what it means to be somebody in the gun business, to what it means to be a a, um, a person who is subject to having to get a license to sell a gun. And, you you know, again, the devil's always in the details. So everybody would agree, I think, that it's the law that if you're going to open up a gun shop like the mom and pops were starting to talk or that we started talking about, that you would have to go get paperwork. You'd have to have a federal firearms license to do that and follow all the rules. But it's always been the the sort of the goal of the anti-gunners to get rid of private sales, the gun shows, the individual sales like, Derek, I'm going to sell you my firearm. And, you know, they would say those are sort of unregistered sales. Some, nobody knows about those. You don't do background checks on those, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, once you start to dig into what that really means, it gets really complicated. Like, can I buy my son a gun for Christmas without having a license and without registering it? Or can I can I leave it behind to my estate? Can I mm-hmm. can I sell it to my good friend, say we're hunting at hunting camp and he really likes my shotgun? I got two and I don't need two. So I just say, hey, give me a hundred bucks mm-hmm. and have that one. Um, now I got to run down to the local gun shop, do some paperwork, and he's got to get a background check. And, you know, it just is... Uh, irrespective of the enforcement mechanisms behind that, it's got some other issues that I think the Supreme Court might have a problem with now. But what they're doing is they're they're broadening or maybe um, watering down what the definition uh, or proposing to water down what the definition of a, uh, a somebody engaged in the business of selling guns actually means. And what they're what they've done is they've eliminated the idea that it's just a brick and mortar shop. And they've, they've sort of blurred it up. So they've given a series, this proposed regulation gives a series of considerations, one of which is like, um, do you sell guns for profit? Well, I mean, Derek, do you have a gun collection? Do you intend to sell yours for a loss? Uh, of course not. And this this reminds me of, a. I remember years ago, about 12 years ago, I started my um, venture into tactical training and uh, I, was, I was attending a class at Tactical Defense Institute and uh, I learned a lot of things I didn't know before. So I immediately went home and uh, put all my 40 cows up for sale. I think I have three or four of them up for sale on Facebook. At the time, you could still put guns for sale up on Facebook. I had them all sold within a day. If I did that today under this rule, it'd probably be considered a crime. Yeah. Um, what they essentially did, the way it works, just to kind of back up a second, Steve, is that you know there's this licensing scheme under the federal firearms act of 1938 that's what created the licensing scheme in the united states and said hey manufacturers and dealers need to be licensed and essentially the magic language as to whether or not you need a license is if you're engaged in the business of firearms but what does that mean well traditionally it meant you were making a livelihood off of uh, repetitive sales well what's interesting and kind of a an irony here is that in, in Obama's most recent gun control law that he actually passed, that Congress passed, uh, which was the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, the BSCA, they took out the word livelihood and they further kind of uh, defined what it means to be engaged in the business. And I'll quote it here for you as to what that law says. Um, but basically, the law defines a firearms dealer as, quote, a person who devotes time, attention, and labor to dealing in firearms as a regular course of trade or business to predominantly earn a profit. So instead of livelihood, it's now to predominantly earn a profit through the repetitive purchase and resale of firearms. But such such terms shall not include a person who makes occasional sales, exchanges, or purchases of firearms for the enhancement of a personal collection or for a hobby or who sells all or part of his personal collection of firearms. 
So as I read that new pr- proposed executive order, I think it's broader than what the definition actually says. Yeah. I, or at least here's the, here's the danger that we've been talking about. ATF agents now have more. So, so the more play in the joints on these kind of, on this language, the more discretion ATF agents have to interpret it one way or another. So, you know, you could say that you're selling your personal collection, you would fall under an exemption here. But when you read all that wishy-washy, weaselly language, it's not so clear because let's say you're only selling, let's say you've got a personal collection, but you're going to say, all right, well, I'm going to fund part of my retirement by offloading my personal collection one gun at a time. Those are repetitive sales. You're, you're not going to sell them for a loss. You're going to want to sell them for a profit. And now you get to the point where maybe it's not a personal collection, but rather inventory. And you're now engaged as a, uh, as somebody in the business, and if you don't have a license, then you're gonna you're subject to criminal punishment. Um, you know, I, and I don't have problem with bright line rules. I think that's what I, I think our point we're trying to make is this is the antithesis of a bright line rule. They didn't say that if you sell X number of guns a month, then you should have a license. Now, look, I, I think there's there's an argument that that would violate the Second Amendment anyway. Uh, but beyond that, at least it would make some sense. Um, anybody who's been in the card business. If you want to sell cars, you only have so many cars you can sell a month before you have to get a license, and that means you have to have a lot with an office and so many parking spots, and et cetera. So here, it, what they're really doing is they're discouraging individuals from getting involved in the gun business to begin with. So if you take, you couple the couple things, you, you, you combine the couple of things we've been talking about. So yeah, let me read this part of the rule. This is right from the proposed rule. Under the definition section says, Steve, whether a person is engaged in the business of dealing in firearms uh, firearms requiring a license is a fact-specific inquiry. So right off the get-go, they're admitting that, hey, this is not a bright-line rule. Then it goes on to say, selling large number of firearms or engaging in offering to engage in frequent transactions may be highly indicative of business activity. Well, like I said at the beginning, if I'm getting ready to retire in Florida, I have 100-plus guns and I just want to liquidate my collection, does that mean I'm in the business? No, it means I'm liquidating my effing collection, right? However, there is no minimum, going back to the quote, there's no minimum threshold number of firearms purchased or sold that triggers the licensing requirement. Similarly, there's no minimum number of transactions that determines whether a person is, quote, engaged in the business of dealing in firearms. For example, even a single firearm transaction or offer to engage in a transaction when combined with other evidence, example, where a person represents to others as a, a willingness to acquire more firearms for resale or offers more firearms for sale, may require a license. A person shall be presumed to be engaged in the business of dealing in firearms in civil and administrative proceedings, absent reliable evidence to the country when the person, one, sells for, sells or offers firearms for sale and also represents to potential buyers or otherwise demonstrates a willingness and ability to purchase and sell additional firearms. Again, if you buy a handgun off me and I'm going to retire and I'm just liquidating my collection and I tell you, well, hey, I got a whole bunch more, you want to come look, to me, it's not a business. I'm just liquidating my damn collection. Number two, spends money, uh, more money or its equivalent on purchases of firearms for the purpose of resale. That's clear to me. Repetitively purchases for purpose of resale. That's also clear to me. Um, so again, it's just a little ambiguous to me. The whole thing about one gun being enough, that's back from Obama. Obama came out with that. I don't necessarily disagree with that. You know, we represented a guy uh, years ago that was being investigated and got called in the ATF's office because um, he had bought a, a five different Glocks. They were on sale, same gun, same model at, I just say, Dick Sporting Goods, for example. And then they showed up an arms list the next day. Um, and he said, Derek, I'm not doing this for a living. I just do it as a hobby. I'm like, I understand that. But what was your purpose in buying these guns and lifting them for sale the next day? You're clearly doing this for a business purpose. Um, but in this instance, they're 
kind of broadening it. They're doing what they can, Steve, to nibble at the edges to make people criminals so that you're just not going to engage in the history of gun culture in this country. Well, there's a concept out there that I've, I've talked about before, maybe even on the show, called incrementalism, where if you if you incrementally change something, it's sort of like the old frog in the boiling water. You know, you got to turn up the heat really slowly and uh, before the, before they know it, they're dead. You know, it's like incrementally they can chip away at the details and the specifics of these kind of regulations. And every time they take away some detail, and it almost seems like they're doing you a favor, like leaving it broad, not just one or, you know, it, it could be that you're this or it could be that you're that. But that that creates discretion for human actors and human actors are subject to corruption. And if you think for a second that your government actors will never be corrupt, then at least admit that maybe yours won't, but the next generation will, you know, at least admit that because now you've given potentially corrupt actors a reason to go after your, uh, your gun sales or your firearms dealers. And when they do that, they've essentially cut off at the heels um, any incentive to get involved in, in the industry. And, and that's really the bigger problem here is that what, what we're doing here, what we're seeing here is a chilling impact on, on uh, the business of firearms, whether it's uh, retail sales or whatever. And, you know, you and I have seen this in other uh, enforcement type actions over the last 12 months with subpoenas going out for records and documents of sales of pieces, parts, even stuff that really we couldn't even link up what the heck somebody was looking for. Um, so you're, it's creating this chilling impact, uh, discouraging people from entering the business or encouraging them to leave. And like all government action, you can say, well, look, I mean, I agree with the cause. The cause is let's get rid of guns. And, you know, maybe so, but you're not going to get rid of guns that way. The Supreme Court has made that very clear. What you're doing is you are empowering the big uh, corporate entities. So you think Cabela's is concerned at all about this? Do you think um, Dick's? And look, I love those stores. I shop at those stores. I've purchased guns at those stores. But I also like the small gun shops as well. And I like the idea that in America, we can still say, you know what? I'd like to explore opening up my own retail firearms business, my little hunting store or my outdoor store or even my self-defense store um, and uh, and get a license and do it. I'd like to get my own FFL so I can help others uh, buy guns lawfully. You know, now, now you're making it so difficult that people will not get involved in those businesses and two things will happen in my humble experience in this kind of stuff. One, the big box, the big corporate entities are going to thrive. Um, and two, you're going to push the regulatory scheme underground, or you're going to eliminate the regulatory scheme and push all those bad actors underground that you're going to encourage black market sales because people aren't going to fart with it. They're going to do their own, yeah. you know, they're going to I sell mean, and do and break the law. And you know, you're, it, it's, it's counterintuitive is what's going on. Steve, along those lines, I, I don't know if you saw this a few weeks ago, the Biden administration was pushing to kill uh, funding for school archery hunter education programs. Did you see that in the news? I did not, which it, yeah. it's, it's lunacy. Yeah, it's 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 just lunacy. Like they are so antagonistic. Like nothing. Like, it, it's no longer even on the table that we just want reasonable control over firearms. That's off the table. We want to get rid of that, and we're going to be as evil as we need to be to make sure that that happens. We're gonna. We don't care about your rights. We don't care about the Second Amendment. We don't care about the Constitution. This is what we're going to do. And I, you know, we got to vote. That's all I can say is we got to vote because yeah, I'm only one person. You're only one person. You know, but as a community, if we get to make our voice heard we can at least protect that right for the foreseeable future. Yeah, you made a couple of good points. Um, first, this this notion that we don't care what the U.S. Supreme Court says, we're doing it anyway. You've seen this now with with uh, 
school loan forgiveness. Biden has made some statements like that. We're just going to do it anyway. And uh, I don't care. Uh, they're wrong. I'm going to do it. You know, there was a time when the U.S. Supreme Court was the law of the land. And like it or not, you know, it could go against you on your notion of, you know, think how many people felt that way with Roe v. Wade and think about how many felt that way with Dobbs. But we still have a law of the land. You still have this notion that somebody's got to have the final say-so. And it's not the president. We don't have a king here. It's not the, it's not the executive branch yeah. of government. The other thing you made, made a point you made is go vote. You know, and if you think if you're voting for somebody because you don't like the other or vice versa, that's fine. But don't ask the question or, or don't don't be surprised when whoever you vote for does what they say they were going to do. So, <laughs> you know, you know, Biden said it. I'm going to take away your guns and just go back and, and Google it. You'll find there, there's all sorts of people that put together the, the, the hodgepodge eclipse uh, of him talking about it. And, you know, he denies it later or whatever. But that's what they say they want to do. And when they do it, don't be surprised. I've had very close friends who hated Trump that says, I'm voting for Biden because I hate Trump. Fine. Vote for, I, I could care less. Vote for whoever you want. And then they ask the next question. I mean, do you think they'll really try to take my guns? I'm like, well, you know, they said they were going to. <laughs> it's like, what do you want me to yeah. tell you? What do you want me to tell you? Now, will they be able? I don't know, but they're sure as hell going to try. And that's fine. Look, there's no perfect uh, side ever on anything. We have an imperfect system yeah. and, uh, you know, be weary of those who claim perfection. I think the best thing we can do as a culture and as a society here in America is educate the younger generations on responsible firearms ownership and the culture of firearms ownership. Uh, because I think it's, it's, it's something that could die away. I mean, these younger generations, if they don't understand, not even, not even necessarily, see the need but if they don't understand where it came from and why we have the second amendment they're the leaders of tomorrow i'm gonna die you're gonna die and then what's the country left with it's just it's a slippery slope i hate to use that term but it really is well and i think that usually it's uh you know the anti-gunners have understood they understand this that they're fighting a culture war so when you see on the news another great point you just made by the way that you see on the news every night Gun control, gun control. We got to do something. Guns, guns, guns. Got to get rid of them. Got to get rid of them. Got to get rid of them. Your kids are being indoctrinated with this. That that's crazy. Um, and they're going to grow up thinking guns are bad. And you know, if they're if they think guns are bad, they'll never use them. And if they never use them, then it doesn't matter what the Constitution says. There will be no interest. And in, you can then then it'll sort of passively take care of itself. In the final stroke of the pen, nobody will be there to object. And it's it's a, it's a good point you bring up. Um, my niece, she was in high school about three years ago. It was after school shooting. If you remember, a lot of the students had these walkouts. Do you remember that? I think it was the Florida yeah. school shooting. And she was part of that. And so she texted me and wanted my opinion. I gave her my opinion. And my aunt called me and says, what'd you do to, what'd you do to so-and-so? She's so upset. I'm not going to give you her name, of course. Um, and I said, well, I just told her my opinion on the Second Amendment. But they're so indoctrinated, it's almost become an emotional reaction to them. They can't see through it and can't see the other side of it and the other opinion of it. And it's just it's just brainwashing. And it's 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 happening. And she lived in Chicago in that area. So, of course, you know, she's completely inundated with uh, far left wing liberalisms that are just nonsensical, in my opinion, and not realistic. And, and uh, the, but it and is the, what it is. And the geographical center of more handgun violence probably than anywhere else in the country. Um, oh, that's Indiana's fault. You didn't know that? That's yeah. Because Indiana has such freedom uh, to buy and sell guns that, you know, they're coming over to Illinois. It's their fault. Uh, okay. Well, I didn't realize <laughs> that. Good, uh, fine. I'm glad that I'm glad that solution or that problem is solved. I mean, what a bunch of nonsense. But look, I guess the point is, is that the, this is a war on several fronts. 
And I do, I sort of stress the idea that it's a war because they, they want to take your guns. There are people out there that would love to just ban all guns in our country, period, end of story. And they're no longer shy about it. They don't hide it. There's no, uh, like you said, there's no uh, advertising now with shotguns. There's just no guns, period. And, you know, it, it, the, the war is occurring in the culture, on TV, on the radio, on TV shows, uh, and in the courts. Um, and if you think that it's not happening, all again, all you have to do is listen to what they're saying. They're telling you what they want to do. Um, and you have to balance that against other policies that you don't like on the other side. I get it. There's no perfection here. But don't take for granted when they tell you they want to take your guns and get rid of them. And don't think for a second that Biden doesn't want to do that. He absolutely wants to do that. And if he, if I he, agree. If he disagrees, you can call on the show. You can just look us up at Munitions Podcast. Oh, I'd and, love to uh, have him yeah, chime out. in. Yeah, we'll, check it we'll out. Grill him. We'll give him the we'll give him the tenth degree. Yeah, we'll pull Biden's uh, question out of the ammo can, but uh, <laughs> maybe maybe next time. But for now, it's probably time to shift to the ammo can. Derek, we had we had a question about when can the government seize my guns? When, so, in other words, when when does the when do the police have the authority to seize my weapon? Uh, say after a traffic stop or after. Um, uh, or if they're investigating something else. Uh, I know, Derek, you dealt with this recently, so I'll pitch this one your way. Yeah, there, I can't remember the statute off the top of my head. I think it's 2923163. There's two statutes that are really relevant. There's another one, too. But the, the basic one, there's a few things at play. One is you have to keep in mind that law enforcement has sovereign immunity. As long as they're acting within the confines of their official duties, they generally can't be sued or held liable for anything. So keep that in the back of your brain. Another one is there's a statute that essentially says, I'm going to paraphrase this, that a firearm can be seized or property generally can be seized. It doesn't say firearm, it says property. A firearm is personal property. can be seized if uh, a felony is being committed or if certain misdemeanors have been committed to which property can be subject to forfeiture. And there's a, there's a list of those things. Uh, what they can't do, you know, I get a lot of questions from law enforcement agencies from time to time that says, well, hey, um, there was a wellness call, someone some family members concerned about this other family member that they might hurt themselves. Well, again, unless there's probable cause that a crime is being committed, they can't just go and take the firearms. Um, if there was uh, any type of mental health issue, maybe, uh, because if you're mentally ill, subject to a court order hospitalization, then, then you can obviously not have a firearm. So it can get a little murky, but the gist of it is that there's got to be some sort of criminal uh, issue afoot. Um, you know, I've also been asked, can they, can, police agencies take firearms for safekeeping. The only way I can see them doing that is, again, if it's they can take them, again, if there's probable cause to take them, or if the uh, person agrees to it. Uh, I generally would not recommend an agency do that because there's civil liability if they do so. But then there's also the 2923-163, which is entitled in Ohio, at least, surrender a firearm to law enforcement officer. And it basically says, uh, at the termination of a stop or within a reasonable time thereafter, and I'm again paraphrasing, uh, fire must be returned. The statute is a little confusing, and I read one case from 2011 in Cleveland, Ohio, of course, that talked about this, and the court says, well, first, before you can get attorney's fees under the law, you have to get a court to order the return of the firearm. I don't read the statute that way. I, I read it differently. I, I read it that the attorney's fees can come along with the order to return the firearm if they don't return it after you demand it. But nevertheless, that statute does apply. There is a, a statute specifically in Ohio for those that are from Ohio that are listening that says that they have to return at the termination of a stop or reasonable time thereafter. And it's got to be in the same condition it was received. So again, uh, in my opinion, Steve, you can speak more to this from a criminal perspective. There's got to be that probable cause element. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. And you know what I would stress about this stuff is that 
nobody really understands how all this works. And I, I don't mean nobody. I mean, but generally speaking, it's the wild, wild west. I mean, I have cases, say you get pulled over for a drunk driving and you have a gun with you and the cops keep it and they, they, and they seize it as part of the arrest. And say it's not brought up at, at the, we go plead guilty to OVI and nobody ever brings up the fact that there was a gun there. What do you do? Well, you have to, you know, unless you're going to go, uh, unless they just give it back to you, which they rarely do, you got to go file a motion and, and litigate yeah. this stuff and demand it back. And they don't want to give it back. And you know, there are times when people say, what about my gun? When do I get that back? And I was like, listen, listen, we're going to file a motion <laughs> in a week. We're not going to address this right now. Cause if you ask, they're going to say no. And uh, they got to, and if they're going to forfeit something, they got to file forfeiture paperwork, yeah. particularly in the feds. You can't just sure. keep stuff. You've got to give notice and an opportunity to be heard. And you got to, you can't just take somebody's private property, whether it's a gun or not. So it is not always so clear. Now I would always tell, I always tell people, look, if you get, if you get pulled over for anything related or, or even, or if you get pulled over anything unrelated to your firearm and there's a firearm there, uh, the police are going to take it. And whether they're allowed to or not, they're going to take it. They're going to take it, put it in the property room. You've got to fight to get it back or at least ask to get it back. Same is true with cash. People always say, well, I had 10000 in cash. I just came from, uh, sold my car and I had all this money or Uncle Bob gave me this because of that. And uh, that had nothing to do with the fact that I was pulled over for OVI or whatever. And they just took my cash. Why did they take my cash? Well, because it's cash. Cops love guns and cash. <laughs> they do. And they, they always they associate that with crime and they're going to hold it. And then you got to call somebody like me, yeah. somebody like Derek, and pull it out of their cold, dead hands to, uh, yeah. to quote a famous gun advocate. And there's another element to that too, Steve, is the value of the gun. I, I get calls all the time. Well, the cops aren't getting my gun back. You know, I want to hire you. I'm like, okay, well, how, what kind of gun is it? Well, it's a Glock 19. All right, that yeah. gun maybe is worth 500 bucks used. Um, I need a $4,000 retainer to get started. Yeah, Just go, go buy yourself six more Glocks. Go buy another Right. One. Yeah. Um, now I did have a case once where a gentleman, there was a wellness check. He was never committed to a mental institution, but there was a wellness check and they took the guns. One, I don't think they could have taken the guns just because of the wellness check, but nevertheless, they refused to give them back. I sent a demand letter to the, uh, this, this township or village. It was a small community and, uh, basically cited 29, 23, 163 and say, we're going to come after attorney fees if you don't return it. Um, and the, uh, the city attorney, like, I was really surprised how aggressive his tone was in his response. He said he was going to report me for an unethical behavior and all of this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? The law per doesn't permit you to keep this person's gun. Um, I wanted to sue him so badly, Steve, but the client didn't have the money to do it. And uh, it was just really unfortunate. But I think we had him dead to rights because I, if I remember correctly, another attorney chimed in was much more conciliatory toward the end of that discussion. And uh I don't know where it ended up. I hope the guy got his gun back. But you're right. Guns like uh, cops like guns. They will take guns even if they don't have the authority to do so. And it's going to cost you money to enforce the law. And judges are not really keen on awarding attorneys' fees in this type of a situation. No, you're right. Exactly. And and the, just the other point you make is, and I, I had to make this point with a client just recently. We're getting his. Uh, and look, the the one of my, I get calls on this all the time. Somebody has their concealed carry gun, their handgun, and they get caught drunk driving and the police take their gun uh, and they get mm -hmm. charged with a felony and proper handling and they get charged with OVI or drunk driving here in Ohio. Uh, and then we're, we're at this spot where you get to the end of the case, we get them resolved one way or another, some Second Amendment challenges going along, maybe that's another show. But, you know, we, we ask for the gun and they say, no, we want to, We want, if your client's going to get this misdemeanor instead of the felony or if your client's going to get this a reckless op instead of the the drunk driving or some other deal, the guns get negotiated away. So we are agreeing to forfeit guns, and we do that all the time in exchange for a resolution of the case. 
And, you know, that doesn't feel good. You don't feel warm and fuzzy about it. And it doesn't even feel, it hardly feels fair. But at least, you know, at least there's some consideration for the guns. And uh, like you said, look, and I always tell people the same thing. What'd you have? Oh, a Springfield XD40. I love that gun. I was like, great, go get another one. They're about 600 bucks new. And uh, that's going to be, uh, then you, you can pay right. $600, get your misdemeanor, get your reckless op, go on about your business. I had somebody recently who had a custom long range rifle. That was a whole different story. You know, that's like thousands of dollars uh, in that. Or, gun. Or, or, or going sentimental value. I've had that come up. Like don't yep. carry great grandpa's handgun, like carry, like you said, you know, an SD or something, just don't yep. carry something that's got, cause you have to assume you're right. That, look, if for whatever reason I get pulled over, this is taken. Do I care if I lose it or not? Yep. Let's, let's just get a new gun that you're going to be your everyday carry that if you lose it, you lose it. It is what it is. You can pawn it away in a negotiated plea if you need to. I'm not saying you're planning on committing a crime, but things happen. Yep. And then one final point, and I'll shut up about all this, is that, and I'll throw one back at the prosecutor and the police, particularly in rural areas around Ohio, prosecutors and police are very open to the notion of the family heirloom gun. Um, so I've had drug cases where the police go in and raid my client's house. They pull out a bunch of AR-15s and some pistols and some other guns that clearly are, uh, say, purchased with drug money. Um, and even if my client ends up with a conviction or was guilty as charged, they also had his grandfather's over-under side-by-side shotgun or even an old 870 Wingmaster shotgun. And um, most prosecutors are cool with returning those, maybe not to the client himself, but rather a family member or somebody who else can who, who can hold on to it for the sake of the family heirloom. So it all is typically not lost on those types of guns. Every now and then I've run into a prosecutor who can be a real prick about it, but most of the time uh, prosecutors understand that stuff. So that's that's the good news. Yeah. All right. Well, if you want to get your question in the ammo can, Derek, what's the best place to get a question to us right now? It's through your office or through your uh, website at this point. Yeah, we're just doing uh, just go to munitionsgroup.com. You can find us there. Um, our YouTube uh, channel is getting uh, rehashed. I know I haven't had videos come out lately, but they're going to start coming out here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and our website, we keep saying this, Steve, but I have your word. It's going to be up soon. Coming soon. Coming soon. I promise. <laughs> Just like our next episode of Munitions Podcast, we're trying to bring these to you every once every two weeks at the most. Uh, we appreciate it. We've had some great feedback from it. Locals have listened. I've got people listening from uh, – uh, from all over the country. So thank you. Now, one one favor for us, just in response, like, download, and share. So it's easy. You like it, you download it, you share it. Uh, wherever you get your podcast, subscribe. It helps us help bring information to you guys. So until next time, this is Munitions Podcast coming at you week in, week out.